conservation can't stop because the world does, you've got to keep going. Hello, I'm John Rossi. I'm a touring drummer with a love for all things animal. When I'm on the road, I spend as much time as possible visiting zoos, aquariums, rescues, and rehab facilities. Now, I want to share those places with you. I'll be talking to keepers, vets, conservationists, volunteers, anyone who is as passionate about animals as I am. Join me on my Raw Safari. Good day, mates. It's time to throw another shrimp on the body because we are here for Raw Safari Down Under. Okay, okay, I'm done. I promise. It was just a joke. I know my Australian accent is horrible. Don't worry. But I am excited to bring you my first interview from Australia. So here we are. It is officially Raw Safari Down Under. And yes, that was a didgeridoo added to the theme song. I mean, I've got to have some fun here, right, y'all? But seriously, y'all, I am really excited to be bringing you my interview today with Chad Crittle. Now, Chad is the senior keeper of Birds and Free Flight Show in Adelaide. That's right, Adelaide, Australia. I know I already said it, but I'm so excited. I have been obsessed with Australia for most of my life. And, you know, I'm not going to lie here, guys. I did not talk to Chad very much about birds or his free flight show. We get into it a little bit, but it turns out that both Chad and I really like philosophical discussions. We also both have acting backgrounds, and so we really like talking. So this episode definitely touches on Chad and the Adelaide Zoo, but it also is just about philosophy and thoughts that you may have about captive animals. And also a big part of it is just the difference between Australia and America. We touch on landmass, we touch on population, we touch on attitudes, we touch on the amazing animals there. Okay, I know that for some of you who are just here for the animal facts, this sounds like we get way off topic, but I promise you, it all ties together in really informative and awesome ways. I love this episode. I love this interview. I love Chad. He's such a cool guy. Um, But we also run super duper long because, like I said, we both really like chatting. So uh, I'm going to get to it right away. Real quick reminders, don't forget to check out at Raw Safari on Instagram and Facebook and at Raw Safari Pod on TikTok. Also keep in mind, Every Thursday is now Zoo News, and if you see any uh, newsworthy zoo or conservation things that you want to pass along my way, please let me know. You can tag me in them or email me at rossafaripod at gmail.com. And uh, with no further ado, here is my interview with Chad Criddle of the Adelaide Zoo. So, why don't we start off by you telling me who you are? where you work, and what you do there. Well, morning, everybody. My name is, well, morning for me. My name is uh, uh, Chad Criddle. I'm the Senior Keeper of Birds and Free Flight Programs at Adelaide Zoo, which is in South Australia. So we're at the very bottom of the Australian continent, and it's a, well, not, no, Tasmania gets that crown, but we're on the on the southern side of mainland Australia. And um, Zoo South Australia has two properties. So I work for Adelaide Zoo, which is in the CBD, smack bang in the middle of Adelaide. And so it's quite a small property. 
Um, it's also the second oldest zoo in the country. So it was, it was set up originally as an acclimatisation society, which was a, an interesting thing that they did in early Australia where European colonists wanted to feel at home and so they were importing things from the mother country to release here at home to make people feel at home here. So things like foxes, um, goldfinches and so on would come to the Adelaide Zoo property they'd start their transition into Australian climate and then they would be released. Um, so that was how the property actually started and then it turned into a zoo. So I work for, for that particular property and then we also have the world's, now the world's largest zoological property. It's about 40 minutes outside of the CBD and it's called Monato Safari Park and that's a big open range precinct. So it's a, a really great organisation um, to work for. It's also Australia's only major zoo organisation that's completely a not-for-profit charity and non-government. So yeah, I really, really enjoy working for them. So I've been down here for the last well, six years this April. Yeah. Awesome. Very cool. That's uh, that's a lot of really great information. Um, so I'm I'm curious about just oh so many things. So you are the first uh, person I'm having on the podcast from Australia. Um, it has taken me far too long to get this accent onto my podcast, and I'm very excited. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so um, yeah, I I guess I would love to start with just talking about what zoos and conservation and li like that life is like in Australia. Um, are they popular? Are you know? Are there a lot of zoo fans? Um, yeah, tell me a little bit about that. Zoos in Australia, it's it's a very different picture in some ways, but then in a lot of ways, it's very similar. Um, we have a lot of wonderful fans. And a lot of us have got really good membership programs across the country. And one of the things that I love about Australian zoos is because there's, there's really only six or seven really large zoo organisations in the country, uh, so the kind of big city major zoos. And if you're a member of one of them, you tend to be able to get free access into all the other major zoos. So if you're a, a member of... Zoo South Australia, you can go to a Zoo's Victoria property and walk in with your membership card and you can go to any of their three properties for free. Um, so we try and really support this zoo community across the whole country. And that's really important because so much of the work, the projects that we do are cooperative. Um, one of the, the big differences between our industry and the, the industry in the United States. And I did have a little bit of a dabble over there. I was lucky enough to intern for Steve Martin's Natural Encounters Inc. Uh, a few years ago in Texas. I started in Florida and went over to Texas. And the biggest difference is just there's just a lot less zoos and aquariums here. So we have to be really, really cooperative on a lot of fronts. And so it does mean that where in the United States you might have three species of tiger maintained by accredited zoos across the region, we'll have one species of endorsed tiger because we have, you know, less places. Um, but our zoos, you know, have got a really proud history of being great organisations and particularly on the conservation front. We're in a really unique position in Australia with a lot of incredible animals which just aren't kept anywhere else in the world and you just can't see them anywhere else in the world. And so as an as organisations, we take that really seriously. And so there's a lot of 
um, really great breed for release programs that go on across the country, supported by our major zoos, uh, and also as well um, rehabilitation. So because we have, and um, you know, unfortunately, the reality of life in Australia is big wildfires, big floods. Um, we have a, a calling on us quite often to step in and rehabilitate a lot of animals, provide homes for them, or, or re-release them back into the wild. So it's a it's a good industry in that sense, in that it is very involved in that um, wild conservation side, particularly for natives. Um, and then we still have a lot of the exotic programs that other facilities do. The biggest, the one big difference as well in my field, particularly because I'm a bird nerd at heart, so I love my birds as much as I love red pandas. <laughs> and I, I, you know, we do have a very successful red panda um, population in Australia. We've got a few properties that bred many, many red pandas. Nice. Um, yeah, uh, but from a bird perspective, we haven't been able to import birds into Australia since the 1970s. There was one import of macaws that occurred in the 90s. So what it means is our exotic bird population is quite low in comparison to an AZA facility. So if you walk around a zoo in Australia, it tends to be 75 to 80% native birds, and then there'll be small pockets of exotic birds, but they tend to be um, essentially have been bred from whatever was here before the laws changed. So we were home to Australia's last flamingo that passed away two years ago at the approximate age, we approximate. She was imported in 1948 and she passed away two years ago. Um, wow. So, yeah, so we were home to the last flamingo. So there's things like that which are just not common sites in our properties, but we have a lot of really cool Australian native wildlife, so lots lots to see and do. Yeah, you do. That's 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 really interesting. And um, one one fact that I think is interesting, uh, especially for my American listeners, um, I know that it doesn't always look this way on on maps, but Australia is is huge. It is a little bit smaller than the United States, but like the U.S. is about 27 percent uh, larger than Australia. And I feel like on a lot of maps, it looks like it could fit in like half of our country, and it very much could not. Um, so there's obviously a, a much lower population there, but this is a lot of land. Um, and so it's interesting when you don't have as many zoological facilities, um, you know, the I guess the impact that all of each individual zoo is having is much, it's just really big. Yeah, it is. And you, I mean, you raise a good point. It is, we are an enormous country. I mean, there are some cattle properties in the Northern Territory that are larger than the state of Texas, which, you know, when I when I brought up that fact when I was in Dallas, not many people were very happy about that. But <laughs> That's amazing. Wow. <laughs> nothing's bigger than Texas. But there, <laughs> we've, we've got some cattle properties that have been run by the same family for generations that are larger than the state of Texas in some parts of the country. But the population is so much lower. So as much as we have the continental, you know, the, the the land space of the United States or just below, we have less than the population of New York City across that entire country. So where New York City CBD can support all the zoos that WCS has, um, we just simply can't support that many properties just from a, a, a population standpoint. Um, what it does mean, though, is we have... Well, just from a 
anecdotal perspective, there seems to be a, a higher ratio of those bigger safari park style zoos. So most of the major zoos have got a big safari park uh, attached to them. So um, Taronga Western Plains in Dubbo, uh, and we've also got Werribee Open Range Zoo in Victoria, which is only 30 minutes outside of Melbourne. And then we've got Monato, which is only 45 minutes out of the city. Um, and so that seems to be a much more common thing here than the big zoos in the US. They don't tend to have as many of those big properties within reach of the CBDs. So I think that's a big that's a big plus of having so much land space. But yeah, it does. We have, you know, you'll have one zoo, big organization that might be looking after, you know, a state the size of a state the size of Texas or New York. Um, and that'll be the one major zoo. So it's you know, there are lots and lots of small amazing wildlife parks around the country that do incredible work as well. So it's not to say that the major zoos are it. There's 80 members of our regional organisation, but a lot of them are small wildlife operations that have been owned by families and, and so on that do incredible work. But, yeah, it's a very different just land space because of that small population. It, it makes life very different for us. That's very interesting. Yeah, very cool. You know, you've used a term a couple times now, um, which is CBD. And I've only ever known that as the oil that people use and kind of get from the same plants that like, um, you know, like cannabis and stuff. And I don't <laughs> think that's what you're talking about. So what what do you mean when you say CBD? That That is a new cultural faux pas that I have learned this morning. So I've really enjoyed that. Um, it's one of my one of my great joys of having so many American colleagues is learning how we speak the same language, but we don't at all. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, no, CBD, sorry, is the central business district. Oh, okay. So that's what you call, um, what you would refer to as like downtown. Right, right. Yeah, that um, makes sense. Yeah. So we, we call it um, the CBD. So it's that's the main hub of a, of a city. Is, is what I'm referring to there. Cool. Sounds good. All right. Uh, yeah, so that's a little different than CBD oil, so. <laughs> yeah, just a, just a touch. Just a touch. Awesome. Very cool. So um, I have a question, and I don't know, I don't know if it's a great question or a silly one, but as you are my first uh, Aussie on here, I'm going to ask it, um, which is, you know, to Americans, uh Australian wildlife is is crazy and rare and cool and neat and people freak out when they see a koala or or Tasmanian devils. Every time I post one of the the devil pics that I've gotten from some of the zoos here that have them, people lose their minds and people don't even know that's what they look like. Literally, people are like, "Oh, I thought it looked like the Looney Tunes character." Uh, nope, not a poop tornado. We're not not a fan of that. But um, so I'm curious that if you live in Australia. Um, are those animals things like, I mean, not, not maybe koalas and kangaroos as much, but, um, echidnas and quokkas and, uh, you know, tree kangaroos, stuff like that. Are those still kind of considered cool and exotic to the general population of Australia? Or is that like us seeing a white tailed deer outside in Pennsylvania? That's a really good question. Um, because Australia is so big in terms of land mass, there is somewhat of a disconnect from wildlife that's not in people's own backyards. So to a, you know, to someone who lives in Adelaide, for example, a Tasmanian devil is still quite interesting because we, you just don't see them as often. 
Um, whereas if like the place where I take my dogs for a walk, every time I go, I see kangaroos and koalas. So, you know, for, and, and it's not so much that you kind of look at them like, oh yeah, it's just, it's like white-tailed deer, for example. Um, they're still treated with a level of interest from, from people, but it's very much, it's very similar in the sense that if they're always in your backyard, you do get desensitized to what they are. Um, so, you know, kangaroos, for example, there's more kangaroos in Australia than there are people. Wait, that's so, real? I always thought that was one of those stupid, like, urban legend things. No, it's oh, genuine. So cool. There are more There are more eastern grey uh, kangaroos in Australia than there are people. And so just one of the three kangaroo species too. So it's not all of them combined. It's just the one species. Um, so for them, if you live in an area where you see them, they become, you know, part of the norm. But for me, I grew up in Sydney, and Sydney is a big city. It's very similar to other big cities around the world. And so your relationship with wildlife is very different. We have a lot of, we had a lot of birds, definitely, that would visit the backyard. And I think that's kind of why I've got that affinity, particularly towards birds. Um, but you, I saw my first wild kangaroo when I think I was about 12. And uh, I didn't see my first wild koala until I moved to Adelaide six years ago. Oh, wow. So I'd work, yeah, so I'd worked and I'd travelled across Australia, but I'd never really seen a wild koala. So for me, that still had the same level of excitement to see a wild koala because I'd, I'd just never seen one before. So it's very much dependent on where you are within Australia as to your relationship with that wildlife. So where we live here... In, we nestled into the foothills and the outskirts of the Adelaide city area, and so we have a lot of wildlife around here. Um, possums, so the beautiful, so we've got Australian possums. Right, the real um, possum, not opossums. Real, yes. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And then well, <laughs> a colleague of mine described an opossum as a Chernobyl rat, which I thought was <laughs> a little bit unfair, but um, also very accurate. But they, um, we've got ringtail possums and brushtail possums around here. And then, you know, koalas will be in the front yard reasonably regularly so you can hear them at night time. So if you grow up in this sort of area, yeah, you would. You'd kind of get desensitised to it in a little bit in, an, in a way. What's really interesting, though, is there's a whole sector of Australian wildlife which Aussies don't even know exist. So, you know, we've got the big stuff like koalas and kangaroos and so on that everyone's even across. But if you talk to someone about a tree kangaroo, there are a lot of people who live in this country that don't know that that's a real thing. Oh, wow. Or, yeah, or um, I'm trying to think like betongs, which I know that there are a few places in the United States that have got brush-tailed betongs. Yes, yes. Um, I hand-read one of those four years ago now and explaining to my family what that was because they didn't know what it was. Um, so there's a whole set, you know, dunarts and, and there's a whole lot of little crawly marsupials that a lot of people have got no idea that's out there. And unfortunately, they tend to be the ones that are most endangered. So a big part of our work as an Australian zoo is making those connections with the local community for the wildlife that's in their own backyard that they don't realise that is there. Um, so a really good example in Adelaide CBD, sorry, I'm rambling on, 
But a really this good. Is great. I, um, I am fascinated. This is great. It, there's a really good example in the Adelaide, and I said CBD again. In the Adelaide um, metro area, there you go. Um, where uh, uh, there's a possum called a pygmy possum, and they're about you know about that big. So that would be about two, uh, two and a half, three inches for those playing at home, and. Um, they often will appear in people's backyards at night time and they'll crawl on the back fence and so on. But so many people think that they're mice because they don't know that there's a possum living in their backyard that's the size of a mouse. Um, and we've, oh, we've got a multitude of native rodent species here too where people will see a rodent and they just assume it's a, a feral rattle mouse. So there's a serious disconnect there Um that we need to really work to to build that relationship with. And part of that is the, you know, Skippy the bush kangaroo really put kangaroos on the map. Um, you know, koalas are koalas and will be cute to who anyone looks at them. Same with quokkas. So it's about building that same level of relationship with native, uh, with, uh, with Aussies um, for their own wildlife. And one of the big ways we look at that as well is is to our Indigenous Australians, so um, who've had a really long and really productive and wonderful relationship with the land that that they live on, um, and still do. And so we we try and work really closely with our Indigenous Australians. And in fact, apologies as well. I should have done an acknowledgement of country on the start to say that I'm. I am meeting with you here from the land of the Ghana people. So they are a, a, a nation of people who lived around the Adelaide area, still do, um, and I acknowledge their elders past, uh, present and emerging as well. So um, we like to do an acknowledgement of country when we're doing a meeting or something along those lines to acknowledge where we're meeting. But those, um, our Indigenous Australians have got really amazing resources and stories about that wildlife which really bring it home um, as to why that wildlife is important. So each year we do a program around, it's called NADOC Week, which is a, a whole week celebrating Indigenous Australians and their culture. We do a really significant program around that and our animal ambassadors and so trying to, to bring out those stories and, and draw links for people who live in and around Australia now who may not have heard those before, and so that's that's really important too. So, yeah, as much as, you know, Americans view some of our wildlife as really interesting and exotic, there are still plenty of Australians who would look at a tree kangaroo and think that you made it up. Um, and so it's it's um, there's still a fair bit of work to do on that front. Um that's really good to know, and that's it's really interesting. I'm I'm curious. Um, you mentioned the indigenous people of Australia, and I have to tell you, as I was growing up, um, I was fascinated with Australia to the point where I did a a term long project in uh, I think seventh grade, where I hu- made this huge um, six story. It was taller than me. Uh, th- like display 3d display all about australia and I, I studied it and i gave a half hour presentation on it. i i'm fascinated by the country and always have been um and the 
term that we used back then was Aborigines. And I'm wondering, as there has been a lot of awakening um, with changing in America, you know, how we use terms and everything, um, is it now more correct to say indigenous people? Is the term Aborigines not something that people should use? Um, uh, give, give me some insight on that, if you don't mind. Um, Aboriginal isn't necessarily an incorrect word to use, but because it is the term that refers to indigenous people from essentially all around the world. So you can use the same term to describe uh, 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 people in um, the Arctic, for example, Inuits. You can use the same word to describe anyone who was um, from that land prior to colonisation. So using the word Indigenous Australians tends to be the way, um, tends to be the vernacular we use. And I think as well because it acknowledges the fact that they lived here for way longer before Europeans did. Yeah, I definitely um, like that a lot. I definitely yeah. think that has a nice um, nice flavor to it. I was just curious because like, it's one of those things where, you know, just because you learn a term growing up does not make it okay. So I, I just kind of wanted to check in as I had the opportunity to uh, to find out about that. Well, and it's it also refers to the fact that our Indigenous population also is far more complex than I think... Um, was originally given credit for in, you know, the, the colonisation view of, of Australia um, in the sense that, you know, for example, there's the Tiwi Islands and the Torres Strait Islands, which are an inherently different cultural group as well, which are acknowledged under that same banner. So it's really important to, to acknowledge just how varied that, that amazing group of people were. And we're so... In a lot of ways, we're fortunate to be able to live in a part of the world that has that longest living culture associated with it. You know, there's records of our Indigenous Australians going back 40,000, 50,000 years, which is just incredible. Um, and so, yeah, we Indigenous Australians tends to be the, the word or the way that we would describe it, and I think that that's important because it does acknowledge that original ownership and... Um, linked to the land where we currently live. Yeah, absolutely. I love that. That makes sense. Um, and you know, you 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 said you said one of my trigger words in a good way. Um, I have four favorite species, and and red panda is obviously one of them. But right up there with them are bintrongs, sea turtles, and you said it, tree kangaroos. I love tree kangaroos. Um, and and I noticed from from doing my lovely insta stalking uh, that that you happen to uh, to to have a friend um, that is a Goodfellows tree kangaroo. Yes, and I need to know everything. We're gonna have a long talk. So many of my listeners have heard me talk about tree kangaroos, but I've not had anyone on to speak about them yet or go into any details. So let's let's wow. do this. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah, I'm excited. Well, so to start with, I'll acknowledge the fact that I love tree kangaroos, but I use my senior keeper privileges <laughs> to go in and visit the tree kangaroos because I love them. And so a very good friend of mine and colleague, uh, Michelle Burkett, is the senior keeper of, of native, native mammals and looks after our tree kangaroos as well as my assistant curator, Deb Barry. Now, Deb Barry actually... Um, grew up in Papua New Guinea and oh. worked at a park in Papua New Guinea that was run by her father and so had, I think, four or five different species of tree kangaroo at the park. 
stuff which has never been kept outside of Papua New Guinea. Oh, either. that's so cool. Um, so I would really recommend as well, if you want to geek out about particularly Papua New Guinea mammals, have a chat with Deb Barry. Um, but tree kangaroos, so we do. We have a good fellow's tree kangaroo. Her name is Boona. Um, Adelaide Zoo has got a really long history with tree kangaroos. They've been one of the things actually that we've kept almost since the zoo opened in the 1800s. We've always had at least one species of tree kangaroo. And what's interesting though is in Australia, most of the tree kangaroos we've kept have always been the Papua New Guinean Okay. Um, so, yes. Yeah, so I, we need to talk. I was, I, this was going to be my next question after we talked about Buna, but let's just hit it. Um, yeah. okay. So Australia has two native species of tree kangaroos, uh, yes. the, the Bennett's and the, uh, Lumholtz. Lumholtz. Yes. And, um, and, and then Papua New Guinea has a bunch and it seems like all of the zoos, not just your zoo, but all of the zoos in Australia seem to have good fellows, which are from Papua New Guinea. And all of the zoos in the States have matches, which are also from Papua New Guinea. And I don't understand why there's that difference and why you guys tend to feature Papua New Guinea versus your own. And tell me all the things. So there's a few big regional implications for those things. So um, the matches and Goodfellows difference across the world. So you might also notice as well, if you look at any member of IASA, so the European Zoo and Aquarium Association, they all keep Goodfellows. So a few years ago, and I say a few years ago, it was more than a few years ago, it would have been over a decade ago now, or, or maybe yeah, around a decade ago, there was a very clear decision made that the AZA would focus on matches and that... Um, Zar, so that's the Australian equivalent, and the e, um, EASA would work together to focus on good fellows. And one of the reasons for that was the population levels of both were so low that having matches spread across the whole world and then trying to move matches around based on best genetic matches and doing the same for good fellows wasn't working. Gotcha. So they needed to try and centralise populations to minimise movement because as much as, you know, as, as all of our listeners would know, we don't exchange, you know, if I'm sending a Goodfellows tree kangaroo to another zoo, we don't buy that Goodfellows tree kangaroo. It's moved for the good of the program, but there are a lot of costs involved in moving an animal. And so if the difference is moving it, Goodfellows tree kangaroo from Adelaide to Melbourne or Adelaide to San Diego, it's a much cheaper process to keep it centralised. Right. So that was the decision made and why they did that. The interesting thing that started to happen now as well, because for a long time, Lumholtz tree kangaroos and Bennett's tree kangaroos were essentially viewed as if by protecting the habitat up in North Queensland, we were going to have far more of an effect on their conservation outcomes long-term than by keeping an insurance population. What started to happen, unfortunately, though, and there's a lot of factors that play into it, but there's a, a hypothesis that's been presented that as um, climate change has occurred and the temperature has shifted, particularly around that northern part of Australia, the moisture levels are changing in the ground, which is meaning the toxin level in the rainforest plants around the Daintree area is increasing. And they've seen an increased level of, Lumho particularly Lumholtz tree kangaroos, 
coming into care with um, vision impairment um, and they still haven't quite ruled out 100% what's going on, but there's been a large number of Lumholtz that for the first time in the last decade have started coming into care and haven't been able to be released. So Lumholtz now, so when I started zookeeping, um, which was 12 years ago, there was one facility in the world that had Lumholtz and now there are six that have Lumholtz and they've uh, the breeding human care now so the, the husbandry is being developed at a much faster rate and it's now an endorsed program of our region. So it is likely that you'll start seeing more facilities exhibiting Lumholtz Likely as well as Goodfellows because uh, we made a commitment as a region that we would also, from an exotic animal perspective, we would prioritise on telling the story of Southeast Asia because they're our closest relatives. And so if we have a, a, um, a in terms of geography, so if we have a, a, um, a conversation with um, Australians about their impact on wildlife overseas, there's a far more tangible link to have a conversation with an Australian about, you know, this this animal lives in, for example, Indonesia, where thousands of Aussies travel to Indonesia every single year. So their choices, what they, you know, the link that they have with an animal in Sydney will have a direct impact on the link that they have with an animal in Southeast Asia. Right, because right. Because they're often travelling there. So we made that, that was a regional decision. So I suspect Goodfellows will still be, in our collections um, for many years to come, but the Lumholtz are going to start to appear more. So um, there have only been, I think, maybe 10 facilities in the whole history of zoos in Australia that have held Lumholtz in total. So there's a lot that we're learning still around them. The good thing is that we've had Goodfellows and we've had Matchies. So the last Matchies at Adelaide Zoo only passed away three years ago. So we were one of the best breeding facilities for Matchies in the world. Wow. And then when the decision was made to move those animals around, we moved breeding animals, but we had an older animal who wasn't able to be moved, so we held on to her. Um, so we've had a lot of practice with Matchies and a lot of practice with Goodfellows at the general technique of keeping tree kangaroos and so now as there is obviously a, a crisis that seems to be developing in northern Queensland with our native tree kangaroos we're able to step in and do that work um, before it's too late and that's the that's the big thing as well as like getting those conservation programs going before it's too late and it's something that thankfully there's a few really incredible campaigners in the North Queensland area for Lumholt. So I was lucky enough. I worked in North Queensland for three years and met a few of those campaigners and they have been working tirelessly to get that issue a bit of publicity. And now, it's, you know, it's, it's getting traction. The zoo community has been on board for years, but, you know, getting, getting those animals and getting that technique down pat. So... That's why Goodfellows, you start to see, you've seen at the moment, Matchies will stay in the AZA, I suspect. Um, their population is doing reasonably well. Same with Goodfellows in Europe. Um, so I suspect you'll continue to see those species as we 
work towards a Lumholtz program in Australia too. And so whether then we stay a Goodfellows region as well is up to then our our tag um, our tag conveners to decide. I suspect we'll stay both, but that's that's up to them. But yeah, as a as a group of species, they're just fascinating. They really are. And they, you know, you watch Boona hop like a kangaroo on the ground and then launch onto a rope <laughs> and then climb up a tree. It just doesn't quite make sense. There's a physics element to a tree kangaroo that doesn't work. <laughs> um, and there's a lot of really good, interesting research that's been done into them as to why tree kangaroos. But there's, there's so many questions that you'd ask about, like, why this animal? But um, they live in, so Papua New Guinea in North Queensland, so the Dane trees are the oldest continual living rainforests in the world. So they've been around for far longer than the Amazon and far longer than the West Congo and they're still surviving. So you're looking at this incredible time capsule of evolution and what's really interesting is things like primates have not made their way into that rainforest. So there's no primates in in that system. And so then you have things like tree kangaroos and you know, filling that role that a large kind of... Because you watch a tree kangaroo move at high speed and they look really similar to a colobus monkey. Interesting. Um, I don't, I've don't. i never seen a tree kangaroo move at even kind of high speed. They're usually pretty chill when I'm, when I'm seeing them. Oh, when they go, it's like watching a, a colobus monkey move at full speed through a canopy. Because they're similar size and you watch them, it's, it's incredible. Um... So there's a lot of, you know, convergent evolution going on there where you've had a, a macropod that's filled that role. Similar as well, those rainforests are home to things like cuscus, which are a, a, a marsupial. They're similar to a possum, but they look just like a loris. Okay. But they're not, but they're not a primate. So if you, it's a really interesting little microcosm of evolution, and then you get things like tree kangaroos and cassowaries and you know, birds of paradise appear. Um, and so it's it's incredible. So, yeah, tree kangaroos, I love them. They're just fascinating. And I'm very lucky because Boona lives right next door to the free flight aviaries. And so when I, you know, get to do a show, you can see Boona hopping on the trees behind us. And, um, and one of the reasons as well, just to divert for a second, which I've been doing this whole time, so I apologise. <laughs> um, one of the reasons that I talked about Colobus is we had a, um, a facility here which we started building tunnels for our primates out around the park so you can so you give the, the primates runs through the trees around the zoo, which looks incredible. That's awesome. But the Colobus, yeah, it's so cool. The Colobus monkey tunnel runs over part of and then behind the tree root exhibit. Um, so you can see a colobus monkey and a tree roo move <laughs> at the same time. And that wasn't done that I'm aware of on purpose, but it worked really well. Um, so hence my analogy. But, um, yeah, she's a, she's a lovely lady, and um, I, I particularly like how much noise she makes when she eats her food. So there is a, there is a video on my Instagram of her 
chewing with her mouth open, which is what she does all the time. And she sits there with her banana and it sounds exactly like would have got me sent to my room <laughs> when I was a child. Um, but she gets away with it because she's adorable. It's time for... Interrupting. 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 Interrupting John. I mean, if you didn't know this was coming, then you do not know this show at all. But without further ado, here is the audio of Buna eating. Have I mentioned that I really love tree kangaroos? All right, y'all, back to the interview. Um, so, yeah, they're an incredible, incredible species, and we are really fortunate to have them here in our own backyard. And so, yeah, they're, they're, they're quite cool. Yeah, they are. I actually I have to show you something. A fan who has become a friend who lives in Australia sent me oh. a stuffed Goodfellows tree kangaroo. It's got Look the back markings and the tail and all of that. That's perfection. I know. It's it's so good. It's so good. Yeah, her name is Emily Rupp and Emily, you're amazing. Thank you. Um but yeah, I just I just had to show you. it's it's just I was so excited. So excited. That's so cool. Well, yeah, I I would um encourage you. I might put you in touch with Deb once we finish chatting, but um cuz she's got some images that she's shown me of things like grizzled and dory and tree kangaroos oh, wow. that she, you know, grew up with in her own backyard. As well as like long beaked echidnas and some really cool stuff. That's awesome. I've only ever seen the short beaked. Yeah, well, there's only one long beaked echidna in human care in the whole world. He lives in, um, he's up at Taronga Zoo in Sydney, actually, and is um, very, very, very old now. But they're about, yeah, three times the size of a short beaked echidna. And they're, they're, yeah, they're weird looking. <laughs> very, very cool. Nice. Very cool. All right. Well, I have, I have, uh, harassed you about overall Australia stuff for so long. Um, but I, I feel like we need to actually get to you a little bit. So what got you into animals? Good question. Um, I think for my, like most of my colleagues, it was like relationships with animals that you had at home as well, as well as trips to the zoo as a kid. Um, and it's why I'm so passionate about zoos and aquariums, because I wouldn't be where, you know, and I'm working on a few big conservation projects in the wild. And um, a few of those, you know, I'd talk to 50% of the people involved in those projects, and all of them are like me and had that first interaction with animals at a zoo or an aquarium. Um, and so it is so important because that's how it started for me. I was, um, I used to bug my family and we'd do one trip to Taronga Zoo a year. We lived very close, but, um, just, you know, taking a family of five to the zoo is not a, <laughs> not a necessarily a cheap trip to do or not something that you can just do all the time, depending on your, your financial setup. So I understand that completely. So we'd go once a year, um, and then there were a few little wildlife parks in the area too, so we'd go to them reasonably regularly. And I just, you know, I was into animals. And then as we were discussing before our podcast this morning, I have a background in theatre, and so I was doing singing and dancing and acting lessons as a child, and and that was looking like it was going to be my career trajectory. I, I did a few professional shows when I was, you know, 12, 13 did a few TV shows, had an agent. I was like, okay, I'm going to go down that path. And then uh, when I was 13, the, the last show that I'd done finished. 
it was running. I was in a, a Cameron Macintosh production of Oliver. Oh, nice! Very and, cool. Yeah, it was it was it was good fun. It was that was great fun. That show, we had way too much fun. <laughs> um, and that show finished, and I'd been doing that show. So we had a month of rehearsal, and then it ran for six months. Um, which is considered a long run for a show in Australia. So, again, very different to, for example, like Broadway, but that's just a populational difference. Um, so we had a six-month run, and then I had gone from going to school one day a week doing a show to then doing normal school and no show to do. And they started a youth volunteer program at Taronga Zoo, which was called Yats Youth at the Zoo, and... It was mainly in the education sector, so it was working with their education programs. And so I was like, well, I like talking, as you can tell. I like animals. Um, I'll give that a go. So I signed up to that, and it very quickly turned into me spending essentially every weekend day that I had all my school holidays at the zoo. And then um, when I was about 15, 16, I'd spent enough days with keepers on section because we started doing that. So you'd essentially volunteer with a keeper for the day. And I did that. And I was like, I really like this. I want to actually do this. Um, And it was interesting because the seed was planted when I first saw the Taronga Zoo bird show. It was about seven or eight. And you're sitting there and this macaw flew out of nowhere and landed on this person's hand. And it just blew, It, you know, as if you're a seven-year-old, you're just like, what? That's amazing. I mean, to be fair, I'm in my 30s and I still go, what? That's amazing <laughs> when I see free flight bird shows and stuff. But, but yes, I get your point. <laughs> it has an incredible effect. Um, so, you know, at home, all through the time I was doing shows, I had pet budgies and cockatiels and I'd make my family sit down and watch me do bird shows. And, um <laughs> So I think it was always going to happen. But, yeah, then I um, I turned 18 and I um, got an, uh, an interview to be a casual keeper at Taronga and I happened to get that role. And that wasn't a guarantee of work. Essentially, you just go on a list and you're an available if there's an emergency and they need somebody for a day. And the first place that called me was the bird show at Taronga. And as a result of that, I've made, you know, lifelong friends, um, learnt from an insane amount of people, and and it just opened up a lot of doors and, you know, however you view that, whether it was meant to be or, you know, luck of the draw, that show as well was set up originally in the 90s by Steve Martin's company. And so the... the um, supervisor at Taronga put me in touch with Steve and that's how I got the Steve opportunity and from that you know I've still got a relationship with uh, the International Association of Avian Trainers and Educators because of that link in fact I presented it we had our first online conference only two weeks ago because we weren't able to get together because of COVID and so I presented a talk um, with a colleague of mine Nick Bishop all the way from over here as part of that conference so yeah, it just started from there, just this, this love and interest in animals. And then I found a way in a zoo environment to combine my love of acting and production with my love of animals. And so, yeah, I've been doing 
animal shows ever since. That's incredible. And we've talked a lot on the podcast about the importance of those shows and how, um, you know, shows exhibit natural behaviors and the animals are not forced to participate and all of that. Um, so, you know, um, you don't have to go too deep into that, but I also am getting new listeners with every episode. So if you wanted to to take a minute and just speak to that and, and the care that goes into um, animals that are doing shows, you know, I think that would go over well. It's a tricky situation. Because I understand that everyone's views on things like even animals in human care to begin with, everyone's views are very different. Um, and the reality of those things is, is they're, they're ethical questions and ethics are personal. And so, you know, when we think about things like, you know, do birds or pinnipeds or dolphins belong in human care doing presentations for public, they're really questions for individual people. Um, because on an objective front, you can look after a dolphin, you can look after an orca, you can look after a bird, you can look after all of those things quite successfully in human care from, the, from a, an objective perspective. It's where the subjective element comes in, but that's up to people's personal, you know, ethics. What I can assure people is, is you know, when these animals do shows with us, the reality is, is that their only thing that is keeping them coming back to our hands, our perches, back into their aviaries, is the fact that they want to. We can put as many trackers on them as we want, but it's not going to stop them leaving. And it doesn't necessarily mean that 100% of the time you're going to be able to find a bird wearing a tracker either. Um, now, I can comfortably say I've never, you know, in my career, 12 years, I've never been involved in a situation where we've lost a bird. Well, that's good. Yeah, they've always come home. Um, but it's, you know, when you look at that situation, you have an animal that is moving outside and is making an active choice to come back and land on my hand or go behind the scenes um, into its enclosure. And so what goes into that is years of work and you know often people will talk about relationships and relationships with individual animals are important but also it's organizational philosophies so you go as zoos sa for example we are 100 positive reinforcement training when we work and choice is a key part of that because an animal being able to choose to say no is as reinforcing as food and water and shelter. So there's a lot of information out there to suggest that it's as a powerful a reinforcer and it should be considered a primary reinforcer too. So something that you would use 100% of the time with an animal. So, you know, choice driven and their welfare is number one. So if we have to reduce an animal's welfare score to, to get that animal, you know, for a public to see whether it's in its home area or whether it's in a show, it doesn't happen. Um, and we monitor that with a, we've got a, an in-house welfare auditing process, which we go through once a year. So um, our whole collection gets reviewed once every 12 months to make sure that, you know, everything's sitting well from a welfare perspective. We use the five domains model of animal welfare. And then all those results get put to an independent committee so they're made up of people from outside of our organisation. They review them first before it comes back to us, and then we're given recommendations on what we need to improve. 
It's time for interrupting. 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 Interrupting John again. Oh, hey again. It's me. Uh, I wanted to break down this five domains model for you really quickly. Um, This is used by the ZAA in Australia, as well as the WAZA, uh, which is the World Association of Zoos and Aquariums. So the five domains model, according to the ZAA, is a science-based structure for assessing animal welfare, which recognizes that animals can experience feelings ranging from negative to positive. Uh, It provides a best practice framework to assess welfare in animals of all species, and it uses four domains, nutrition, environment, health, and behavior, to then inform the fifth domain, the mental domain. In other words, they take a look at whether the animals have positive experiences with nutrition, their environment, their physical health, and their behavior, which then leads to assessing whether they are having positive or negative experiences overall in their mental domain, which then leads to the assessment of their welfare status. There are all kinds of really cool charts and graphs about this and even a history of it at zooaquarium.org.au if you're interested. I find it fascinating. Anyway, back to the interview. Why do I always sound like a Muppet when I say that? The other thing that I would encourage people to look at is for any like forms of accreditation. So if you're looking as to go, okay, I want to go to a zoo and I want to make sure that if I'm watching this animal presentation or this animal show or whatever you want to call them, um, that those animals are being well looked after, look for an accreditation symbol. So in an, in an Australian facility, it's the Zoo and Aquarium Association. Um, in the US, it's the AZA. There's also the other um, faci- uh, other accreditation. Right, the ZAA also exists and is is good. Yes. So we we're um, we're also ZAA, which is interesting over in Australia. Um, but they, so you got the ZAA. Um, there's also a few bodies like. Um, Marine Mammal Parks Alliance and so on. But um, the good thing about the AZA is I know that their welfare accreditation program is really solid. And so I'd I'd look to accreditation as well. If you see an accreditation next to a park from a body like that, you can rest easy that those animals' welfare and care is at the foremost importance to what we do. The reality is as well is for none of us, who work in this industry, um, it's there's no money in it. So, we, you know, we're not, we're not earning money. The parks that we work for as well, if they are a for-profit, they're operating on very, very slim margins. Um, most of us aren't. Most parks are not for-profit. And so you're running on revenue and hopefully you get a, a surplus each year. But a lot of the time we're spending more money than we're earning because... We're looking after animals. And I think you look at the, um, to really hammer home to people's, you know, as to what these organisations are, is look at the response to COVID. And that to me has been the big thing. How many, yes, there were people who were laid off. And I understand that, you know, that's been more intense in other parts of the world um, than here. So there are some places that had to lay off people. Um, but they did it because they also had an obligation to care for their animals and so they had to have enough money in the bank to pay for the fish or to pay for the food or to whatever it was. And 
that that to me says a lot about what those organisations are because if it was a 100%, you know, if they were money-hungry businesses, if your revenue disappeared, you'd just shut up shop. But they kept those facilities going and operation in full swing, training those animals, working with those animals. And it shows you as well that the training is for the best care of the animals too because if we were still doing it day in, day out when there was no public coming through, which is what we were doing, it, it was, it's for the care of those animals. And so, you know, this last 12 months been a really interesting point, I think, for our industry. And I think it's a really good example as to why we exist because even without visitors, we were reaching out, doing online um, interactions as well. So many parks were doing that. And there wasn't, you know, we were doing that for free. People were just putting stuff online. There was nothing to get from that apart from the continued education and inspiration of visitors for the wildlife that we have because our work couldn't stop. Conservation can't stop because the world does. You've got to keep going. So it's, a, it's yeah, that was a really long answer to the um, why shows are important. Um, but it was a really <laughs> good one. I, I enjoy talking about the value of our industry and the value of what we do because I think it's so important and I think for so many years that that hasn't been seen or it hasn't been um, acknowledged is the sheer value of the work that people do in our industry all around the world. Um, and it starts with, you know, our interestingly, Zoo South Australia, which is the group that I work for, we've got a mission statement. And the first line of it is to connect people with nature because without doing that, you can't save species from extinction, which is our second line. So we exist to connect people with nature and save species from extinction. And, you know, you think about the world that we live in now, and this is maybe getting a little bit philosophical, but if you think about the world we live in now where kids can get on a TV show and they've got access to hundreds of TV channels, they can watch streaming services, they can watch... You know, it's access to engagement and entertainment all around them all the time. You've got to have things which are punchy and interesting that grab their attention and draw their focus to what's important around them. And so for a zoo, a 15-minute bird show, we can do more for conservation in that 15 minutes than, you know, unfortunately now 10 books on the shelves might do. Um because if you're interested enough to pick up the book and read the book, you're essentially already, it's like preaching to the converted. Someone's already there and interested and engaged. The, you know, the shows, the presentations, the displays, that's where we talk to the people who've come to the zoo for a fun day out. And that might be where we plant that seed, like it was planted with me, that, wow, that macaw was cool. I didn't know, you know, I didn't necessarily walk away knowing all the facts about a macaw. I didn't, you know, know how its metabolism worked. It was irrelevant. I just thought they were cool. And so then, you know, that's how a love of wildlife starts. And that's why it's important because at the end of the day, you, you don't have time to sit with each person and talk about all the biofacts, but you have time to create moments where they're like, I really like macaws and hopefully, you know, I think about it as well because often people will talk about, you know, engaging the next generation of zookeepers or the next generation of biologists, for example, as well. But also it's about, you know, that kid who comes and sees my show today 
if they end up on the board of an oil company in 20 years' time or uh, as a, you know, a, a person working for the mines or just someone generally in business or politics, if they've had a really interesting and engaging experience with an animal when they're eight or nine, hopefully they'll think about that when they're making a decision in other aspects of the world too. That's really how we're going to make an impact. Um, it's not necessarily preaching to the converted. It's about talking to the people who might be sitting on the fence and have other priorities as well, but pointing out how important these animals are. Absolutely. And I think, um, I think it's, it's funny how much you don't know what's going to land and what's not. Um, I will, I have not told this story on the podcast yet, but, um, I had not heard of tree kangaroos just a few years ago. Okay. Now, like I said, they are one of my big four now. And, and so that's a lot of love and a lot of growth in a very short amount of time. And, um, so when the San Diego Zoo Safari Park was opening their Australia exhibit, they did a online test to find out what kind of Australian animal are you answer these six questions or whatever. And I was like, well, this is dumb, but I'm clearly going to do it because I love the safari park and I'm bored. Why not? And I got tree kangaroo and I did not know what that meant. I knew that it was really cute from the picture that they showed me, but I did not know what that meant. And so I started doing research into tree kangaroos and I fell in love and I it's it's changed my whole perspective. Now I'm featuring them here on the podcast, and I, I you know, um, I'm, I'm going to be doing another one about uh, with a matchies keeper soon. And um, just I'm so fascinated. I want to spread the word and the conservation message about these animals because of a stupid online <laughs> quiz. But it just something broke through to my heart, and like from the that day forward, I was like. I'm a tree kangaroo. I love tree kangaroos. I should research tree kangaroos. What are tree kangaroos? Oh my gosh, there are so many species. And it's just, it became a huge passion and love from one silly little thing, you know? It ties in, I think, very clearly with as well, one of the most powerful tools in what we do. And it's drawing links to what people, to, to people themselves. So the fact that they've said, you know, by answering these questions, you are a tree kangaroo. You're like, oh, oh, I'm a tree kangaroo. I know what that's like. Um, so like, um, for example, I work on a project with a species called the orange belly parrot and orange belly parrot is, they're the size of a budgerigar, or you would call them a parakeet in the United States. Um, but they're the, currently the most endangered wild living parrot in Australia, arguably in the world. Um, and up until two years ago, there was only, um, 20 of them left in the wild. So these birds are the size of a household parakeet, but they do a thousand kilometre round trip migration every year, which includes crossing the Bass Strait between Tasmania and mainland Australia. So a lot of people had never heard of these birds, including myself. I'd, I was working in Australia as a bird keeper and I'd never heard of them. And then I moved to Adelaide and it was one of our key species and I saw this little creature and then someone said they crossed the Bass Strait. And I'm looking at this. It's a stretch of water that would be the equivalent of, you know, flying from Florida to part of the part of the um, Bahamas or, or, you know, part of, the, part of the Caribbean. So it's a significant length. And if you imagine a parakeet flying <laughs> across that stretch of ocean, and they do it twice a year. So they fly across once, then they fly back for breeding. And you just kind of... I, it was struggled to fathom, like, why do they do this? And someone said because their favourite place to nest, the, everything that they need 
is on the southwestmost tip of Tassie, and everything they need to survive the winter is on the mainland. So it just comes down to needs. And if you think about, you know, if you talk to people about the fact that these animals, they need a place and a space to call home like we do. They want enough resources to raise a family and look after themselves like we do. And it kind of sinks in for people. And then you go, well, these animals' neighbourhoods just happens to be across that that stretch of space. So if you live in a, in, in a city, you might have everything you need in a block radius. But if you live on a huge property out in rural parts of, you know, of our country or in other parts of the world, you have to travel a lot further. So they're just like us. They just want food. They just want a place to live. Um, and so we need to do what we can to protect them. Um, but it wasn't until there was a really hard-hitting thing that I saw about them, um, which was a mint tin, so a little tin of, like, breath mints, mm -hmm. and it had the bird on the front, and the the sentence on it was, there are more mints in this tin than orange-bellied parrots in the wild. It was like... Wow. Like that. <laughs> um, and when you put it... It was a really good campaign that was done by another zoo here in Australia, and... Um, that really hit home for me. And so when you talk about that sort of stuff, it can be little things that might fit into someone's pocket. It might be the quiz that you did online. It could be a mint tin, something relevant to people's daily lives that gets the message out there. Um, and so it's why what we do is so important um, for those animals. And the great news with orange belly parrots is, is that this last year has had the biggest increase in their population in the wild for the last 30 years. So how, you know, whether that's COVID-related or whether that's um, uh, there's a whole bunch of other projects, but there's a huge cross-section of people working on this project, but a lot of zoos, a lot of national parks agencies, and it's resulting in serious tangible change. That's awesome. And we wouldn't have been able to do that. That's so cool. What, um, what, what, like, yeah. What's the name of the project and where can people find out more about that? So that's called, um, they're called Orange Belly Parrots. So I would encourage people to, um, there's a, a variety of online resources. So at the moment, I'm the acting chair of the National Recovery Team um, and the chair of the Captive Management Group as well. But there's a, a bunch of resources from national parks groups across Australia because they live across multiple states um, and a, a, a huge amount of research too. So if you just put Orange Belly Parrot into your Google search, there's a trove of information about, I think, one of the most important Australian birds that really needs help at the moment, um, but we're having serious success with. Um, and, you know, it's been years and years. There have been people who've working, I'm talking about this now, but there have been people who've been working on this for the last 30 years. Um, so me working with them for the last, you know, two and a half, three years is... <laughs> I, you know, I, I'm not the one necessarily who's put in the work, but thankfully I'm in parts of my job. I've got a platform to be able to talk about them. Um, and so, yeah, there's a, a huge amount of amazing work that's gone into that. So Google orange belly parrots. See yourself an adorable parrot too. They're <laughs> very cute, um, but they are a very important species too. Very, very cool, yeah. Um, and I agree with you that the more you can do to connect um, 
like to make animals relevant to people really helps. That's my, the the original mission statement for my podcast is to connect my people to animals through their people. Because if you tell the interesting stories of the humans and then also say, "Oh, so tell me about your tree kangaroo," or "Oh, so tell me about your birds," or whatever, um, people beyond just animal nerds might be interested in that. You know, the the idea of "Oh, wow, this is what it's like to be a zookeeper." Oh, wow, I didn't know that it was. Oh, you can you can actually train a bird to to fly back to you and you know even when it can still fly and oh wow and um yeah that's been a big part of my my mission from from the start so uh yeah that's it's very cool that uh that you have such a focus on that i, I really love that um are there any other organizations uh conservation organizations or anything that you wanted to give a shout out to well just the one that i work for I think that's, you know, maybe a bit selfish. Um, <laughs> hey, that, but, um, that's why you do a podcast, right? <laughs> yeah. But if you get online and look at Zoo South Australia, um, we're a small organisation comparative to some of the other zoo organisations in Australia, but we punch really hard when it comes to conservation work. Oh, that's such a great and, way to say that. I love it. Yeah, it's good. Um, we have been involved at the moment we've got 25 projects and partnerships going here at home and around the world but we've got a lot of stuff that goes on on both of our sites um we've bred over 200 um bilbies for example australian bilbies um recently our organization was just successful at translocating and reintroducing the mallee emu wren back into south australia after many years of it not being there we re-established populations of yellowfoot rock wallabies back into the Flinders. Um, so it's a, you know, there's a lot of successes. But one of the reasons I love my organisation is again, it's very people focused. We work really closely with local communities, um, and so there's a project at the moment that we work on called Cockies Helping Cockies. Now in Australia, a cocky is the slang word for someone who owns a farm or owns a property. And so we've got a, pro a project working with landowners and farmers who live in the area where the endangered southeastern red-tailed cockatoo lives. Um, and so we work with those landowners. They restore vegetation, put up nest boxes, and essentially take ownership over those birds. And it's resulted in really significant increases for those birds in the wild in that area, which is about five hours from Adelaide. And so that work's been going on and been very successful. So lots of really great projects for a small facility and um, a lot of really ambitious stuff moving into the future. So um, definitely worth having a look at. It's time now, don't you know? We've come to the end of the show. But there's one tale left to go. You're going to laugh and say, oh no. It's time for the Rossifari poop story. Hit me. Oh, the poop story. Poop story. As a zookeeper, there's so many. <laughs> Our life is essentially just poop. And I, you know, it sounds very glamorous and we talked about philosophical stuff. But at the end of the day, we pick up poo. And not only that, we kind of make our own bed because we put together the food <laughs> that goes in and actually makes the poop. So we make the problem for ourselves in a way. Um, but you end up in some situations where for the care of that animal, it's really gross for us. So I had a really interesting moment in my career where I was working with um, a, a leopard seal. Um, it was uh, the only one in care at the time. 
who was really, really unwell and at the time, and as part of that, who'd um, come in through rehab, and as part of that, we, <laughs> we had to do um, daily enemas on that animal for for about a week and was knee-deep in everything that was coming back out of that animal um, for, a, for a week a, a solid, which was just really foul. Um, but, it sh- again, that was we were putting that care into that animal. It needed to be done, and you don't ask questions. You don't go, that's just what you've got to do. Um, but the, the simplest and funniest gross one, so poop, poop is good, <laughs> but birds of prey do something really gross where they can't digest bones and fur. So they compact it into a pellet and then they regurgitate it up once a day. And it looks like a solid nugget poo. So for my first, like when I first started as a zookeeper, I embarrassed myself horrendously because I walked into my supervisor with this little cast and I said, I didn't know birds poo like this. Because <laughs> it, looks, it looks just like a dog poo. Um, 18-year-old Chad learned very quickly that that was a really <laughs> silly question to ask. Um, but the um, they do this and they do it daily and they bring it up. Most of the time it's in the morning and so if you work in a show context, most of the time it's done before people are there. But I was with a, a bird out the front after a show once and she started doing the move. So they sit there and they start shaking their head. I'm like, oh, this is good. This is good timing because there's a big crowd here. <laughs> and she regurges the pellet up and they're often stinky and smelly and sticky because they've been inside their throat and it's, you know, bits of fur and bones and what have you. And she happened to flick it so that it hit my face <laughs> while I'm standing there talking to people. And I thought that was, you know, oh, that's gross enough as it is. But I thought it had dropped off. But it hadn't. It had kind of stuck there. And so I just stood there and I kept answering questions and talking to these school kids. And I thought, I thought I had these school kids like so interested in birds. I'm like, yes, they love birds. I've really achieved something today. How good's that? And then I walked off and there's this big hunkin' pellet stuck to my face. And I had a colleague on stage with me too who'd seen the whole thing happen and not said anything. <laughs> it was like the it was like the giant equivalent of the spinach in the teeth sort of scenario. <laughs> but no one thought, let's tell the guy that he's got an owl pellet stuck to his face. Let's just leave him there. Let's see how much he loves talking to people. And he just wouldn't know. And I just stood there. Um, so it was pretty foul. And, I mean, in the scheme of things, we get pooped on pretty regularly. But that was a combination of, like, serious embarrassment <laughs> as well as the fact that I then had to peel it off oh. and there was, like, just bits of, like, fur and stuff. It was just, oh. And I love birds of prey, but it's a serious price to pay to work with them, to have, you know, bits of leftovers, fur and stuff stuck to your face. But worth it in the end. I'm sure they have a story. I'm sure the people who I were talking to have a story and <laughs> about this guy who got... Our vomit stuck to his face, but you know that's it's just part of the fun. Well, I will tell you, I guarantee you that every every child there definitely learned and has not forgotten that that birds of prey do this. You know, probably, and I've probably scarred them for life, and they've all gone into office jobs. But that's you know that's fine. That's okay. <laughs> 
Awesome. Well, thank you so much for doing this, man. I really appreciate it. It's been a lot of fun. No worries at all. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. And um, yeah, always happy to chat about our wonderful wildlife and great to great to share the story of Aussie wildlife. Okay, true story, y'all. I loved that interview so much. And when I finished doing the interview, I sat back with this big smile on my face and I said, ah, that was awesome. Wait, was that awesome? Or did I just really enjoy hearing Chad's accent for the entire interview? But then I went back and edited it for this podcast episode, and it turns out it was actually a really awesome interview because Chad is just amazing. I loved every way that he looked at everything that he talked about. Um, so, yeah, the accent was just an added bonus. <laughs> um, to learn more about Chad, you should really check out his Instagram, which is at Chad's Zoo Life because he has a zoo life and his name is Chad and it is just a great place. You can go and see Buna eating and his birds and all kinds of cool stuff. And then also the zoo's website is www.zoossa.com.au because Australian websites have to be all cool and put their AU at the end. Uh, And speaking of putting cool things at the end, here's your reminder that the word credits backwards is Stiderk, but in Australian it would be Stiderk, mate. (laughs) I got to stop doing these podcasts late at night. Anyway, here are the Stiderk. Well, that's our show for this week. I hope you enjoyed listening as much as I enjoyed making it. Our theme song is Sevens by Nathan Burke, performed by Nathan Burke and John Rossi. Listen and subscribe on any podcast app. Please take the time to leave a review as it helps other people find our podcast. You can find Rossafari on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Rossafari, on the web at Rossafari.com, or email me directly at rossafaripod at gmail.com. Now, stop listening to me and go visit a zoo.